Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York City, its history, its texture, its vibe, its uniqueness. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, locally musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight, we showcase an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement in the city, the history of different immigrant communities. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at the history of bicycles and cycling, punk and opera, our public library systems, the subway, our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges. Yes, New York City even has great bridges. After the podcast, you after the broadcast, sorry, you can catch us on podcasts. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight, we are celebrating uh, islands. We're celebrating two islands right in the middle of New York Harbor in Upper New York Bay. Uh, and we are lucky to have two guests who are not only passionate about both of them, but each of them give historical tours of the island islands and bring their own special color to illuminating that part of uh, the island's history and its present to those lucky enough to go on their tours. My first guest is Mandy Edgecombe. Mandy is a new guest to Rediscovering New York. She's a public historian, educator, and naturalist focusing on Lower Manhattan, Jer- Jersey City, and New York Harbor. Mandy got her start during college and graduated as a naturalist. She became kayak tour guide for Liberty State Park. Her decade-long dedication to the park took her to the position of vice president of the Friends of Liberty State Park. She's also been a federal park ranger for the National Park Service at sites such as the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, the Stonewall National Monument, and Governor's Island. Surprise, surprise. Mandy continues to give private tours of those sites today while also continuing to volunteer at Governor's Island. She was also a supervisor with Save Ellis Island when their hospital tours commenced in 2014, and most recently was a docent at the South Street Seaport Museum, and for the last five years has been giving history tours around the city and writing for Untapped New York. She continues her work with Untapped New York today while also hard at work in preservation as a trustee of the Jersey City Landmarks Conservancy, where she has been residing for 15 years. Mandy Edgecombe, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. You're muted. Thank you so much, there Jeff. Happy to be here. Very happy to be here. I always ask, like to ask my guests, almost, almost all of them who are dedicated to helping others discover incredible things about our great city. Are you from New York originally? No, I'm from Chicago originally. Oh, and what took you here? Uh, what took me here was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up uh, to move here. And so I took that opportunity and continued my studies in environmental science and geology uh, from leaving a degree in uh, anthropology at the University of Cincinnati. Oh, well, I wanted to ask you about about your background. Um, aside from being dedicated to sharing things about the city's history, you're also a naturalist. One doesn't generally put urban discovery, especially at a place like New York, in the same basket as nature. How did you become interested in both things? 
I do believe that everything I do is uh, applied cultural anthropology. So, and I don't believe that teaching about one environment, uh, teaching about history, I, 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 I feel that there's something missing unless you teach about your local environment and how history affected that and how that affected history. Uh, when I was in school, uh, my professors said, my geology professors said, hey, uh, lower Manhattan has a bunch of buildings on it because there's bedrock there. Midtown has a bunch of buildings on it because there's bedrock there. That's why they built them. Beep, boop, bop. That's the end of the story. That's absolutely not the end of the story. And it's completely untrue. There it was a happenstance that there was bedrock in lower Manhattan. And those buildings were built there because that's where Manhattan's, I mean, that's where our, you know, our oldest buildings are, our oldest skyscrapers are. And they're all built next to each other because they needed to be next to each other because we didn't have email. Uh, so historically, that's why, you know, lower Manhattan happens to have, you know, skyscrapers under bedrock. Midtown grew because of Grand Central's uh, creation in 1913. Bedrock's there. Great. Awesome. It was a train station that was there that built Midtown. So, oh. so, so the historical value of just learning about one aspect of the environment you, you can't learn one without the other, I don't believe. Of course, New York, we have people, you know, they look at us from afar and they see the concrete jungle in Manhattan. But there's just so much nature around us. We have so much uh, coastline, so much, you know, uh, we have wetlands in the city. And that fact, this harkens back to when I was in high school back in the 70s. Uh, it was uh, kind of a new thing. My high school, Midwood High School, they had uh, uh, they developed a class in urban ecology and a bunch of us uh, uh, wonks uh, took it. It was a lot of fun. Um, how did you get to be a park ranger at Governor's Island? That's something that you don't uh, meet a lot of people who've done before. I had had a background in uh, statue uh, and Ellis as a park ranger. And so since that was already on my resume, I was lucky enough to be hired uh, at Governor's Island as well. Hmm. And speaking of Governor's Island, um, probably as many people and tourists have not been to Governor's Island as have been to Liberty Island where the Statue of Liberty is and also Ellis Island. To me, in some ways, it's actually the far more fascinating is it's the biggest and also has the most that you can explore. I mean, there was so I was shocked to find like a movie theater there when I was there uh, uh, two summers ago and there was all this stuff to explore. Um, but I want to talk about not only the island's history, it's all, but also its present and for what it is for us today in the 21st century in New York Live today. But first, let's talk about the history of Governor's Island. Um, how did the island get its name? Uh, go Governor, it, it took a while for <clears throat> the island to get its name, because if you really want to, you know, what year do we want to say that the history started? We have to be very clear and say colonial Dutch, 1633, 1637, kind of whatever, but the Lenny Lenape had been there obviously for hundreds to thousands of years prior to that. So just making sure, you know, I make that clear. Um, the Lenape, and we can't really get too specific with tribal names because the coastal areas and the islands of New York Harbor were a place of meeting of many different tribes that actually were located in inland camps uh, for most of the winter and would come to the harbor to kind of create defensive alliances, harvest oysters, uh, you know, hang out with each other, do whatever. The island was called Paganac Island because it was full of uh, nut bearing trees like hickory um, and chestnut and nut bearing oak Paganac in uh, Algonquin, which is what the Lenape spoke 
uh, uh, means island of nut trees. And so when mm. the Dutch got there, they called it uh, 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 Notent Island in Dutch, which means nut island, uh, obviously very many nut trees. The English take over in 1664 to calling it to New York province. They called it Nutten Island in, in English. By throughout this entire time, though, when you had Dutch occupation from 1624 to 1664, the elite ruling class or the rulers of you know, the colony would be called governor generals or director generals, often director generals, but sometimes interchangeably governor generals. When the English took over, their you know, ruling class were called governor generals. And the island was always thought of not only a place of defense, but a place of leisure and a place where, you know, somebody that was aristocratic wanted to have his own private land or private plantation, which happened throughout the Dutch days and the English days. So it was kind of, uh, you know, throughout the 1700s, people started calling it Governor's Island. Was it truly a place for private English, you know, occupation? Yes, at some points in time. But we do have proof uh, from the Ratzer map. Uh, of, of 1767 is when we finally see it be, being called Governors or Nutton Island. And this is after the Seven Years' War, as Americans call it, the uh, French and Indian War. And we do have proof that the English were there on the island uh, doing military activities because there's documents that say, you know, Royal British Army Governors Island Battalion during the Seven wow. Years' War. So that's kind of basically when it started. We're going to talk a little bit about the island's uh, history during wartime, but let's go back to the time of the Dutch for for a second. Um, people think of New Amsterdam starting uh, in Lower Manhattan. Uh, the settlement actually started on that island for a year or two, didn't it, before they decided to start building uh, on the lower tip of, of, of what became Manhattan? Yeah, the settlement, settlement started first in Wilmington, Delaware, because Wilmington, Delaware was closest to the Indian trade routes that had already existed before the colonists got there that failed very quickly. Governor's Island had always been a place of staging uh, when these ships were coming in. Uh, Henry Hudson in 1609 did not use it as a place for staging, but plenty of explorers came in after him, uh, including Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen, in the year 1613, 1614, and then again in 1619. And Governor's Island was, also, was always used as a staging point before they made their way up to Albany. So once you know, they finally brought over the first Wallonian or Walloon settlers, French Protestant refugees that had no place being in Habsburg, Spain anymore, um, over, they came to Governor's Island to settle because they kind of just thought they always would. The island has such amazing defensive properties you can see your enemies from all sides and it's closer to the entrance of the harbor than lower manhattan was and lower manhattan had very dense forests that uh the colonists were a little worried about what ended up happening was that the um uh engineer crin Fredrickson, he said hey guys governor's island is a little tiny and we don't have enough room for our cows to graze so why don't we move over here which was lower manhattan and therefore, that's where New Amsterdam mm. got its start. Well, let's forward, fast forward uh, at least 150 years after the Dutch first settled the area uh, to uh, the Revolutionary War and, and wartime specifically. Governor's Island had some important history during wartime. Let's uh, take a quick um, inventory of what happened in, in, in a couple of different wars <laughs> before we take a break. Uh, what was its significance in the Revolutionary War? 
Uh, significance in the Revolutionary War, uh, General Israel Putnam, he had his fame with the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, did create some kind of redoubt, some kind of fort in the upland areas of Governor's Island, which is where Fort Jay is today. Um, and so what is that? It's, it's kind of piles of wood and mud. There were some cannons there and there, were, there was some fire during the Battle of Brooklyn from Governor's Island uh, to an English frigate that would have been, you know, in the harbor kind of facing where Castle Williams would have been built in the future. And so if archaeologists today were actually to, you know, kind of get in there and do some metal detecting in the ground between uh, where that battle happened, they could find musket balls from the Revolutionary War from the Battle of Brooklyn. Wow. But it was really a, just a, it was a short, you know, uh, kind of blip, but, it, it, but important. After independence and before the War of 1812, <clears throat> Governor's Island played a major role in the defense of New York and its harbor. And uh, there are the beginnings of, of what we can see there today. Do you want to talk about the two forts that are on the island? Yes, I would love to. Uh, the two <laughs> forts. Um, so we have Castle Williams. Castle Williams get its name, gets its name from Jonathan Williams. Jonathan Williams was the grand nephew of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was hanging out in France a lot during the Revolutionary War because he just didn't like hanging out with his wife, really, truly, to be honest. Uh, so his grandnephew came there to study fortifications. Now, after the Revolutionary War, clearly the fledgling United States wanted to make sure it was much more fortified than it was during the Revolutionary War. And as we know from the Battle of Brooklyn, that is essentially how George Washington got chased into Fort Lee and thank God he saved his troops. But we, uh, you know, or, or whoever at the time didn't have really a, a good enough proper idea or surveying or mapping of Brooklyn. So young Jonathan Williams, Ben Franklin's grandnephew, went to France to not only study how forts were built, including uh, Vauban style forts, which is what Castle Williams is. It's a Vauban style fort, or excuse me, Fort Jay is a Vauban style fort. Castle Williams is actually a circular shaped fort, which people uh, didn't actually trust at the time. Um, but Jonathan Williams studied in France, studied build, uh, how to build forts. And then he also surveyed Brooklyn. And that's why Williamsburg has its name. It's named after Jonathan Williams. And, and Jonathan Williams also built all the other forts in New York Harbor. And New York Harbor is characterized by these forts built uh, for the War of 1812, because we wanted to make sure that we were protected since that was kind of like our second war of independence, mm -hmm. to be honest. And one of the architects uh, of our, well, the architect of, of many of our forts now has a fort named after him. Wow. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Mandy Edgecombe. Uh, Mandy is a public historian and naturalist and also leads tours for Untapped New York. We'll talk about that also in the second part of my interview with her. We'll be back in a moment. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, 
for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York in episode 126. This is the 126th episode. Um, and Joyce was on the first. She's our second guest. Uh, it's uh, the islands of New York Harbor. Actually, two of them. We have too many of them to cover in one program. But we're talking today about Governor's Island and Ellis Island. My first guest is public historian, educator, and naturalist Mandy Edgecombe. Mandy, one of the many things that you do is lead tours for Untapped New York. Do you want to take a minute to tell our listeners uh, the tours that they can experience firsthand with you as uh, as leader? Uh, absolutely. Um, I do tours of the Brooklyn Bridge, the subway, Grand Central Terminal, New Amsterdam, Governor's Island. I'm probably missing some things. There's many things on the docket, including, including Jersey City. Um, oh, goodness. Is there is there more? There is more. Uh, my main focus in, in terms of my scholarly study is New Amsterdam though and my New Amsterdam tour with Untapped New York uh, that is only given by others if I'm sick or out of town was a TripAdvisor winning tour of 2020 which is wow which is crazy you know 2020 um, but uh, that, that's a really fun one um, and Grand Central is a big big favorite of mine uh, uh, to give but uh, they're they're all fantastic and I just I just the passion just leaks out of me and that is so obvious. <laughs> you just see the passion for New York history. How can people find actually get in touch with you and find out about your tours at Untap New York? Um, they can contact Untap New York directly. Um, you, they, it, you, I can always be requested for public or private tours. Um, and and more description of the tours that I give are there. Um, we'll be putting some Governor's Island tours on the docket uh, after this show. Uh, so if any listeners are looking to go and learn a lot, lot more details, um, uh, please see uh, Untapped New York. It actually, the, the do domain name is untappedcities.com. We had just changed our name to Untapped New York. Um, but please see the site for that. Also, Jersey City Landmarks Conservancy. I give free tours around Jersey City for them as well. That's actually something that I'd be very interested in, in, in seeing. I mean, Jersey City is literally across the water. 
uh, got us closer to Manhattan than parts of Brooklyn. And uh, a lot of people might not think that Jersey City has some amazing things to see, especially on a tour with such a dedicated uh, fan of of the place. Um, Governor's Island, uh, let's go back to history during wartime. Um, it was used by the federal government for a purpose during the Civil War that most people, even most New Yorkers, don't even know about. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, uh, I think I know what you're asking. I mean, during the Civil War, uh, well, from the 1820s to 1860s, it was also um, uh, the, the headquarters of ordnance or the New York Arsenal. Um, the reason it was the New York Arsenal was because um, the, oh, I, I do know what you're asking about, uh, because it's very easy to obviously pick up uh, arms as ships are going out. But specifically during the Civil War, it was used as um, a Confederate POW camp, specifically Castle Williams. And at uh, certain points in time, you would have had upwards um, of 500 men in the same cell. Um, and, and this, and what I mean, cell Castle Williams was a fort, but the fort had, um, you know, it, it has different sections to it that just ended up seeming to be really handy to make a prison out of. Um, and so obviously later on, it became the, um, disciplinary barracks, uh, of the East for the U S army, but it got its start as a POW camp for Confederate soldiers. Many of them would die of smallpox every single day. Their officers would be housed in Fort Jay because they were officers, so they were considered gentlemen. So they did have quarters that were more gentlemanly, if you will, and they would go visit their um, men at about five o'clock every day to try to boost their morale. Sing Sing also started out like this, too. Oh, wow. What, what was the activity on Governor's Island during the First World War? Uh, activity uh, First World War was it was a place of um, you know expediting war materiel, uh, not you know not necessarily training so much, but uh, definitely recruitment. And and the, the idea of recruitment at Governor's Island is is a little shifty. You would get your papers that you would be recruited at Fort Jay, but you might get trained somewhere else due to the, the you know the nature of the island being um, kind of small. During World War One, though, there was a, um, a a railroad on Governor's Island, something that um, our, our good friend Kevin Fitzpatrick is very obsessed with, and an app, he's the number one uh, expert on the railroad of Governor's Island. But there were a lot of cheap warehouses built so that war material could get out uh, to France and to Europe very easily. And what you had via uh, General John Pershing, Blackjack Pershing, he got that name because he had the wacky idea that women and African-Americans should somehow be a part of the American war effort. But what it ended up happening due just to the nature of the times was that a lot of African-American labor uh, stayed on the island uh, just as, as, as you know, home labor, essentially, uh, and, and wasn't out doing any kind of infantry work. Um, so... Governor's Island looked very different during World War One, and Governor's Island had just grown after World War, uh, right before World War One, because it used to be half as small. Uh, it essentially looks like an ice cream cone. The ice cream part of the cone is Manhattan schist. It's an extension of the bedrock of Manhattan, but the rest of it is fill from the Lexington Avenue Line subway, the IRT, uh, as it was dug out. They dumped some of that over there and extended the island. And then there was room for a lot of these World War I warehouses for war material to be, to be sent out. 
I'll definitely remember that the next time I'm buzzing along on the <clears> four <throat> or five train deep under <laughs> deep under Lexington Avenue. And there, um, and we love remnants. So there are some uh, railroad remnants there. You don't see the railroad tracks anymore, but by the urban farm, there are some rail remnants from that. And the rail was there to get that heavy material from one end to, of the island to the other. It also had some significant history in the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, by the Second World War, it's just going to be a place of, of administration. Uh, there's not there's there's not recruitment there's not training going on at, at Governor's Island. Um, you're going to have more of your high ranking. Well, there's always been high ranking members there, but just a place of administration. And by that time, um, you know, women were a part of the war effort. Women have been a part of the war effort since the Revolutionary War, but secretly. But women were a part of the war effort by World War One. So definitely by World War Two they were. And the WAC started out as W A A C Women's Auxiliary Army Corps and that's a little insulting in and of itself. Why aren't we just the Women's Army Corps? And so that was fought, and I don't remember the woman's name, uh, that was fought to get that extra A out of there. And then the WACs are stationed at Governor's Island. Um, they, uh, they're also, their building was private and all their commissary and everything that they did was in that same building because it, they didn't want the women to walk about the island to, you know, somehow taunt the men. Of course not. But, you would all you uh, did, and if it, please excuse me if I'm wrong, the 15th Infantry Division was in the building in Liggett Hall, which is in the building next to them. Liggett Hall is as long as the Chrysler Building is tall. Uh, it housed about I don't know, I think 1,575 men, but you had boyfriends and girlfriends that maybe at one in the morning might visit each other's rooms from the WAC building that was right next door. To, to the infantry guys that were right there. Wonder um, if there might have been boyfriends and boyfriends and girlfriends and girlfriends, but uh, we'll have never to know. discover that in a separate, separate show. But hey, uh, why don't you have a lady? You know, if if back in, especially back in those days, why do, why aren't we having women women doing the work at home? Uh, whether it is just doing typewriter work, you know, uh, B. Arthur was a whack for the Marines and she drove a truck yeah. for the Marines, but she didn't like talking about it, and we only found out about it after she passed. Oh, wow. Um, after the Second World War, uh, Governor's Island was decommissioned as an army base. It became a Coast Guard base. Um, but I'd like to, we have a couple of minutes left. So let's talk about when the island became a national monument and when it started getting open to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, by 2007, a good friend of mine who's still a park ranger at Ellis Island today uh, was sent over to do rudimentary tours. Um, uh, Joyce Gold was also doing tours of Governor's Island then so if she would like to talk about that when it's her time that would be awesome she has a lot of uh, amazing supplementary info to, uh, to, to, to fill in my gaps but essentially the National Park Service started doing it around 2007 around 2010 you're going to see uh, Governor's Island become the you know, um, guerrilla style artist haven that it did you know Bill Clinton made it a national monument. George Bush sold it to the city for a dollar. Mayor Mayor Bloomberg is mayor at the time. He gives the island to Leslie Koch, gives her the keys. And he says, here you go. Don't fuck it up. Excuse my French. Uh, but that is a true statement. It's okay. We're not on the air. We're on uh, the <laughs> internet. So we can, we don't have, a, we don't have any censors. And so what she did was build that island up to the artist haven that it was as National Park Service rangers are doing tours, not only doing tours, but they're also doing um, uh, events where they're shooting off the cannon and dressing up as Civil War soldiers, Mexican War soldiers, 
um, and doing reenactments, um, you know, to show off the, uh, you know, how amazing the 22 acres between those two forts are. Um, One of the great things about Governor's Island uh, is that in some ways it's become an urban park planner's dream. They haven't just showcase the history. They've added so much there. They added the hill, the campgrounds, there's an arts haven, and there's so much new stuff. They took down a building and created a meadow. It's, it's an extraordinary place. Um, we're almost out of time, Andy. I wanted to ask you about a, a personal reflection. Um, um, something you have experience with uh, are former Army and Coast Guard personnel who have come back to Governor's Island and seen their former quarters and also seen the evolution of the island and maybe its transformation for its use. Um, what was it like for some of these service members to come back and, and, and experience a place that they had been once upon a time? I've, I've shared a lot of tears with these people and you'll, you'll have a lot of Coast Guard members. Uh, you know, they were there from 65 to 96. So you'll see more Coast Guard members come back and tell you stories about their quarters and their lives there. And, and it really makes those houses come alive. I mean, these kids grew up there. They have a Facebook page called the Governor's Island Brats. Uh, when I was a very new ranger, I mean, I had just started 2016. I had that job for just a few weeks. I was on property called Nolan Park, which is where the commanding officers would live. All those houses are built army yellow. Some of the oldest homes on Governor's Island are there. If you visit, you'll, you'll you know, obviously it's very easy to see. Um, but I had somebody who was a major general in the army and so was his father. And he contacted me, he saw me and he said, hey, I want to visit my old quarters. And he, he grew up in Nolan Park because his father was a major general, so very high ranking as that's the high ranking area. Um, and I said, okay. And so I, I radioed my boss and my boss said, I'm sorry, that is a part of the trust of Governor's Island. That's the city's jurisdiction. We don't have keys to that house. Him and his wife wanted to go into that house because this man grew up there. Not only did he grow up there, but when he was 18, he joined the army himself and he went off to boot camp. And then he was stationed at Governor's Island twice in his army career after that. So he'd lived on the island three times. As an 18-year-old man, when he went off to boot camp, he said, you know, my mother was a good army wife, and I always had to do chores. And I didn't do my last chore, which was sweeping the back (laughs) steps. And him and his wife were in their 70s. And I'm looking around. I don't have keys to get into this house. And so I find a window that's open. And I said, do you want to climb in the window with me so you can see your old house? And we did. We climbed in the window. When we went back to the back steps, those steps were covered in paint chips and debris like he had never swept the steps since he was 18 years old. And we all started crying. And I just wish that I could have given him a broom so that he could have done it and fulfilled that, but he didn't need the broom because he got to see those steps. And that was one of the most amazing experiences that I ever had as a park ranger because it's a new monument. So therefore I get this firsthand primary source experience of Mm. people that were just there. That doesn't happen. I can't talk to, you know, a member of the Zuni tribe, right? Out West that there's a national park site dedicated to because they're gone. But I got to hear that man's story. Wow. That's such a moving story. Um, Mandy, thank you so much for being my guest on Rediscovering New York and this episode on Islands in the Harbor and specifically Governor's Island. Everyone, my first guest has been Mandy Edgecombe. Mandy is a historian, educator, 
and naturalist. Uh, and she also conducts tours for Untapped in New York. You can find out about her offerings at untappedcities.com. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with our second guest about another famous island in New York, Ellis Island. We'll be back in a moment. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Chirag Modi, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Chirag can be reached at 718-210-1167. And support also comes from Jacqueline Hosford Interior Design, specializing in residential and commercial renovation and decorating. Jacqueline can be reached at 347-482-1700. You can like this show on Facebook. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's on all three or Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is no stranger to Rediscovering New York. And of course, I'm referring to Joyce Gold, 
Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City, and if this wasn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce, quote, the doyen of New York City tour guides. It's a level of recognition that any tour guide would not only want, but probably fight for and maybe even die for. And we welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Joyce, a hearty welcome back to the program. You're muted. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. You are very welcome. It's always great to have you. Um, it's been a couple of months since you've been on the show. Real briefly, how did you get involved in the work that you do, specifically bringing New York history to life for people who were lucky enough to experience New York through through your eyes and your tours? Well, it all began one day that changed my life. I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank downtown, and I just picked up a 100-year-old book about old New York. It discussed, because the city basically started down there, it discussed uh, sites that streets that I passed every day coming from the subway and it started making my daily life much more interesting. I wanted other New Yorkers to have that experience as well. And so I've been reading about the city, studying about the city, talking about the city ever since. Mm. And Ellis Island is one of those places that you give tours of. Um, Ellis Island was the gateway that millions of immigrants came through to enter into the United States. And I think we actually both have relatives who did, Absolutely. who came through Ellis Island. Um, first, for whom is Ellis Island named? How, how did we get its name? Well, it's named for Samuel Ellis. He was the last private owner of the island. Uh, but in 1808, the federal government wanted to purchase what was then a three acre spot in the harbor from his heirs and they paid $10,000 for the three acres in 1808, an unbelievable amount of money because they wanted to use it to help defend the harbor against a potential British invasion in what becomes the War of 1812. Before Ellis Island became the immigration center that it was famous for, um, what were some of its previous uses before that? Oh, what was Ellis what, Island? What was on there? What, what was there before uh, the federal government turned it into the immigration center? Well, it was privately owned. It was a fort, Fort Gibson. The remains of Fort Gibson are still there. And that's what it was mainly used for at that time. It didn't become an immigrant landing station until 1892. Where did immigrants come from uh, through when they got to New York before Ellis Island uh, Opened. Actually, more specifically, where, you know, where, where would immigrants have been processed in New York before Ellis Island opened? Well, there were two main spots that they might have landed in uh, and come into the harbor through. One was piers until 1855. The boat docked, you got off the pier. Basically, anybody who wanted to rip you off could because you had no idea about a lot of the new country that you were entering. And that was until 1855. At that year, New York State took over uh, immigration in town, and they used Castle Clinton, still in the southern tip of the island in Battery Park. Uh, Eight million people came through Castle Clinton from 1855 to 1890. That's where well-to-do women went to get their maid right off 
the boat. And that's where, um, again, people were robbed to some extent. Now, in the late 1880s, the federal government started passing a lot of laws having to do with immigration. The state didn't feel that they could handle all of the new regulations. So from 1890 to 1902, uh, tonight, from 1890 to 1892, the immigrant landing station was a nearby pier. But in 1892, that's when Ellis Island began. Did the experience of immigration change? And of course, we, we, we know that big famous building with, the, with the big hole in Ellis Island, which was built uh, um, right before it opened as, as, as an immigration center. Did the opening of Ellis Island um, change the experience for immigrants coming into New York, coming to the United States through New York? Well, uh, they were they were uh, rejected more. Two percent of the people that landed at Ellis Island are sent back, not necessarily to where they had started, but to where they got the boat to which they might have walked 1500 miles before they got the boat. They often had no money. And they were checked for medical purposes, for political purposes, uh, for mental purposes. And so there was a lot of fear. It became known as the Island of Tears because maybe you would be rejected. You wouldn't really know in advance. Maybe a member of your family would be rejected. You wouldn't know in advance. And then what would you do about it? So it was a very scary place uh, that Castle Clinton really hadn't been. Castle Clinton at the time was called Castle Garden or Kessel Garden as some people pronounced it. And I think you had to be in pretty bad shape to be rejected there. But at Ellis Island, there were many reasons for which you could be rejected. They asked you uh, almost two dozen questions. And if you answered wrong, that might be the end of your American immigration. Wow, wow. After Ellis Island opened, Joyce, did all immigrants who came into New York come through the island? Well, if you came on a first or second class ticket, you didn't go to Ellis Island. The uh, ship, the transatlantic ship might just drop off people at Ellis or more likely they would take everybody to the Canard Pier or the White Star Pier or the German American Line Pier. And they figured if you could afford a first or second class passage, you were not gonna be a ward of the state. You were not gonna be a problem and in UK. But what usually happened is at that pier, third-class steerage passengers were put on a boat and taken to Ellis Island. Unless they paid $5, and then sometimes they would not be taken to Ellis Island. So part of the chicanery mm. that went on there. Well, of course, there were other ports of entry. In fact, my great-grandmother from Avellino in Italy came through Boston. She didn't come through New York, even though she settled yeah. here. Um, how were other ports of entry different from New York and Ellis Island? Galveston was another big port. People, depending on what part of the country they went to or what ship they could get, uh, went there. And in some cases, I think the requirements were less stringent. And that might also have been another reason that people went to other ports. And did New York have more immigrants coming in through Ellis Island than, than, than these other port cities did? Oh, very much. 12 million people came through Ellis Island between 1892 and 1924. And when the feds finally stopped using it completely in uh, the 1950s, a total of 17 million had come through and no other uh, entry port was even near those numbers. So still immigrants coming into the United States as early as, as late as the early 1950s would still come in through Ellis Island. 
Well, the laws changed uh, in, in a big way in 1924, which is why that 12 million until 1924. Before that time, you were brought to about a mile and a quarter from the mainland of Manhattan before they decided whether you were going to stay. But something much more humanitarian was passed in 1924. It said you took all your medical information and your other information to the American representative in your home country. And if you got on a ship or a plane, you could be assured that you would be allowed to come in. So that's mm. really why the uh, gates kind of closed. Wow. Different experiences in different times. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our fascinating conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours about Ellis Island, another of the famous islands in New York Harbor. We'll be back in a moment. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york and our 126th episode on the famous islands in new york harbor my guest is joyce gold of joyce gold history tours joyce can you believe we're at the 126th episode already you were uh my first uh guest on uh the history of, of new york uh wave episode one way that was like almost three years ago almost seems like yesterday you're uh, uh still muted by the way Okay. There you go. 
moving back to Ellis Island, um, how well did the new immigration center, hand, center handle the crush of immigrants? Well, it was different at different times. It wasn't a steady stream. For example, during the war, World War I, very few people came and there was an economic depression which happened periodically in the city. Very few people came. In 1907, 1.3 million people came through and that was really overcrowded. They had designed the place to handle about half a million people a year. And this was a lot more than that, more than twice as many. Sometimes the ship bringing the immigrants would just be anchored in the harbor overnight because they couldn't accommodate them inside. It was quite a crush. Wow. You mentioned that uh, there was a, a rejection rate of people getting off the boat into Ellis Island coming into the U.S. of about 2%. And some of that was due to um, uh, health reasons, uh, contagion. What was the medical check like at Ellis Island? Well, you walked up 37 steps and the immigrant often didn't know that the, that was already the start of it. There was a medical officer at the top who would see how you were breathing, if you were holding your side, if you were wearing a hat, perhaps to cover a terrible wound. And if there was question about your physicality, they would put a chalk mark on the back of your shirt, uh, different chalk marks for different things to be further checked. 30 feet down at the, at the curve, there was another health officer. And you might have more than one chalk mark on the back of you. And then you would be taken by yourself without a lawyer, without a friend or family member to be examined more thoroughly. So it was quite, uh, quite rigorous. The most feared of all the health officers was called the eye man by uh, using a button hook, the kind that you use to button high button shoes. He opened the lid of the, uh, opened your eye, of the lid of your eye he would lift. And if you had any bumps there, that means you had trachoma, uh, something totally gone in this country, but still in parts of Africa, it, uh, it still rages because uh, you need an antibiotic to end it. But if you had these bumps, you had trachoma, it was incurable at the time, it was very contagious, caused blindness, and you would be out. You might have, have any idea that you had this ailment. Wow. Earlier, you talked about people getting uh, taken advantage of on the piers and also at, at Castle Williams when people got off the boat. Um, was there much corruption on Ellis Island itself? There definitely was a lot, especially at first, uh, because the feds handled part of the process, but then they sold concessions to say the company that sold the railroad tickets to elsewhere in the country, to the money changer people, to the dining room facility, and uh, to other aspects, to the luggage handling people. And they would really try to gouge out the immigrant who might not have any idea of the kind of currency or what the price should be. But in 1901, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president and he very shortly after brings in a Wall Street guy named William Williams who put out the message that if you uh, abuse the immigrant, you will be out of here. Uh, that did a lot to help things, but not completely. For example, if you wanted to go from New York to Detroit, and they sold you a ticket via Mobile, Alabama, you might not be aware of it and have to pay what the ticket price was. Mm. And take a really long route to get there. Um, let's talk about an organization that was active at the time and that serviced, that helped immigrants. Um, it was the HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. 
what was it and why was it needed? Well, Hayes, what did it do? Yeah, Hayas was one of a number of religious and ethnic organizations that helped the immigrant. But Hayas came on the scene when if a Jewish immigrant died on Ellis, they were given a Christian burial. And Hayas uh, stopped that, uh, made sure they had a Jewish burial. Also, if people were detained on Ellis Island and were kosher, they would eat very little of the food and Hayas put in a kosher kitchen. And after that, many of the people who had been thought too sick to come to America got much, got well and were admitted. Uh, Hayas today is still very active in the world. It is the largest immigrant settlement uh, organization and deals with people, not only Jewish people, and helps them leave Russia or wherever they are out of. Joyce, there's a striking statue in the harbor near the ferry pier. Part of the statue shows a man in the water. What's the story of that statue? Well, that's called the Merchant Marine statue. And the Merchant Marine is a military organization during wartime. In 1942, the USS Muskegon was hit by a German submarine, and a man on the German submarine photographed the ship going down. That photograph was the subject of this. It shows a ship, a ship sinking just off of the coast of the Battery. Three men on the sinking ship are trying to help one of their colleagues in the water get out. Uh, it's a true story. All of the men died and veterans of the Merchant Marine paid for that statue. The sculptor is Marisol. She actually lived at a building I used to live in, in uh, Soho and is one of the great art uh, sculptors of America today. Does Ellis Island have records that people can go to, to to see if family members actually came through? Well, they do have a website and you can look it up. I think ellisisland.org or .com. I think it's .org. And you can look it up. Mormon, uh, Mormon Church helped find a lot of those records that are accessible. But, you know, as I said, 8 million people came to Castle Garden before Ellis Island. And those records were kept in the wooden building that precedes the present one on the island. There was a fire there in, 19, in 1897, and all of those records went up in smoke. So they don't have access to the best of my knowledge of the Castle Clinton years, but uh, the website, and they will help you do it on the island uh, mm. access some information. Well, Joyce, we're almost at a time we have a minute left, and I committed a cardinal sin uh, at the beginning of the second uh, uh, segment with you. I didn't ask you about your tours. I almost uh, always do. So Over COVID, I, I designed six more tours. I now do tours of over 45 neighborhoods, which to me is always weird, as how many times you've had this show. Uh, I've added a lot of new tours, and I have uh, my most popular probably have to do with Greenwich Village. I have 35 different tours of Greenwich Village. My most popular, I will be giving this year to the public on Halloween. It's my macabre Greenwich Village. Ooh, Beautiful. I've taken that. That's a great one. A lot of people on that. And uh, the financial district, having written guidebooks to both of those neighborhoods. Uh, but the financial district, I have a Hamilton version. I have a Revolutionary War version. I have a lot of different versions of it. And uh, I do a lot of ethnic tours that are on my public schedule. If somebody writes me at Joyce at Joyce Gold History Tours, I will send them my schedule, which starts the 11th of next month. 
And those are tours, they can just show up. There are about, I think, 15 different routes on that. And uh, mainly what I do are private tours. And my website, which can be a little daunting because there's so much on it, will tell people the choices of private tours as well. And that's JoyceColdHistoryTours.com. Joyce, thank you so much for being a wonderful returning guest to Rediscovering New York. It's always good to have you. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Well, everyone, we've just finished this week's journey. We visited Governor's Island and Ellis Island in New York Harbor, but of course didn't have a lot of time to talk about those two islands. So I'd encourage everyone to find out more about them or more specifically visit them. And you can do them yourselves and do them through private tour companies like with Joyce and with Mandy. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors this evening, Chirag Modi, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and also Jacqueline Hosford, interior design. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our production assistant is Kyle McLeister, who's also our engineer this evening. Thank you so much, Kyle. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Coffee Talk XL with Kevin Barbaro. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next time. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 